Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome to the Weekly Typographic. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Micah. How you doing? I am struggling on this Thursday morning, but I am honestly excited to be hanging out with you because you always cheer me up. Thanks, Micah. I'm super eager to cheer you up, to share all the cool links this week, to talk about my nerd alert, super nerdy, but (laughs) lots of fun facts. I think that can appeal to a broad ranging audience. You don't have to specifically be a typographic nerd to tune into this week's nerd alert. It's going to be a little bit of history, a little bit of practical tips. Yeah, and fun pop culture trivia as well. Oh, nice. And a variety of things to chat about today. Absolutely. By the way, everybody, we recorded our first interview this week. I'm just going to tease that. We will be releasing it soon. So get ready. It's with a very accomplished type designer and educator. So we had a lot of profound career things to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I just, I'm, it's really kind of the first of its kind. They were great. All right. Wait, before Uh, we get in, I have fun random news that I discovered this morning. Please Uh, tell me. Yeah, I was browsing GitHub, as a nerd does, and I was looking at my own profile, and I discovered something that... So GitHub recently had this program where the headline for the description of this is to preserve open source software for future generations. And they talked about how a lot of modern advances recently in the world of computers live on computers with like hard drives and SSD drives and even the cloud lives on all of this storage that doesn't have a really long lifespan. Like they talk about how CDs literally die after a couple decades, hard drives and SSDs die, even like backup that is saved on tape can only live for like 30 years. And so they had this program where they took a snapshot of the top open source contributions on GitHub and saved it in the special format and brought it to the Arctic, this crazy facility that is beautiful. I watched a video about it where they're trying to preserve open source code for basically a thousand years, 250 meters deep in the permafrost of Arctic mountains. And I I was excited to see that the league was one of those contributions. So our open source type is going to live on forever. Like, like, wow. We live in a world where things go obsolete so fast. So I love that code is now in a physical form and in a vault somewhere. And you know, they're actually doing that with, I believe, like bread wheat. They do a similar thing, and with spices, they do it with all these things that they're worried that will one day become obsolete, and that they'll have to find a new way to feed people. Dude, can in the you same imagine, category. like, a thousand years from now, humans are extinct, but aliens land on the planet, and they're like, "Holy crap! What are these things?" Yeah, this is this is their language. This is how they transcribed things. This is how they communicated. And if they figure out the code, everything in the future could be in League Gothic. Future alien races set in League Gothic. So anyway, that's that's cool. Super cool. I love that news. I guess it's probably time to talk about other people's news. 
I'm very excited about this first article. And it's from Brand New, which reports on all the rebranding out there. And I'm so happy they did this one. They looked at the rebranding for King Arthur Flower, which has changed its name to King Arthur Baking Company. Lots of fun facts in here. King Arthur Flower is used by a lot of people that kind of take baking like slightly more seriously than everybody else. Like, I know my dad will buy like buckets of King Arthur flour. We have like industrial size amount of King Arthur flour at my house back in Chicago because he's a big baker. Definitely a baking nerd dad and he's totally listening to this. So King Arthur flour, funny enough, is not even from England, which I thought they were. They're from the US. They're a company based in Vermont, which is hilarious. Hmm. Um, so, and I, I also loved that the author of this article, the blogger at Brand New, said that he got more tips in his inbox about King Arthur than the Nissan rebrand last week. So there is clearly a solid <laughs> intersection at the Venn diagram of baking and branding. You know, what's that. interesting is I didn't really understand the reason behind why they wanted to rebrand, but also the old version was still good. That still holds up. It was very Absolutely. illustrative as opposed to this being sort of minimalist. Yeah, they really took a step in a different aesthetic direction with this new logo. It's very clean, lots of clean lines. I really do love the icon they have that is a visual pun between a wheat stalk and a crown. Mm. I think that's pretty clever. I think for production purposes, it w- it's probably a better move to move to a more simplified logo that is easier to translate to one color and just can mm. be used across many platforms. In general, they change their packaging, mostly just they change the typeface on their packaging, not really the layout. So nothing too jarring. It's just the seal that I think is going to be the biggest change in their packaging. But Which I think um, that's pretty smart. We've talked once or twice mm-hmm. in past podcasts about how physical products, especially in grocery stores and foods, people mm-hmm. get really used to the visual recognition of the thing that I'm used to buying. So it's probably mm-hmm. dangerous to change that too much. Yeah. And I agree. Like if I saw this in the aisle out the back of my eye, I'd still probably know it's King Arthur. I think it's pretty interesting they changed to a baking company instead of a flower company. So they can like kind of keep on expanding into this world where there's more people that are gluten-free and all sorts of products they're, you know, making their facility can be under this larger brand. Hmm. So super excited to see this. And I'm glad to see the design community was also very excited to see this (laughs) as well. It wasn't just me. And I definitely love their merch they made as well. Our next article is from Digital Arts, and it's how to get your first design job. This is just quick snippets of advice from, you know, professionals working at agencies, mostly ad agencies and creative agencies, about how to land your job and any feedback that they give. There's some of the more generic advice that you give to recently graduated students, but I do think they have this really interesting point. They said that there's Massive opportunities. You can now apply for jobs in other cities and countries without having to travel for interviews or potentially even roles. So you could work for a company that's not in your local area because everything's so much more friendly right now. Or you could interview somewhere um, that's also not in your area remotely without there being a pressure to come into the office. That's a way that opportunities are opening up. I totally, I'm not going to ignore the fact we're in a pandemic. It's going to be harder in general. And so they give you tools on how to fine tune your portfolio and how to make sure you're moving your work towards the right kind of agency and being deliberate about where you're trying to push your work. And at the end, they say, you know, it is really difficult right now. So just like take your work in stride and 
be the best that you can be. And, you know, Instagram culture kind of has made this really high pressure where you think everyone just has a job right out of college and makes it right away. And that's not always the case. So I think it's a, it's a good balance of work hard, fine tune your portfolio, but also realistically, you can't feel all the pressure that people typically feel because we're in an economic disaster right now. You know what? One of my favorite chunks of this was, was there's a section called, is an internship worth your time? Hmm. And I've always been fascinated by internships because a lot of them feel wrong to me. I've, I've mostly never been okay with it, especially because I had a handful of friends who did it unpaid internships in college. Hmm. And I was like, so you're just doing the job, but for no money, you know, internships should be illegal. Right. I'll say that. They yeah. they put an interesting point in here. One is they say the main benefit of interning in general, whether it's paid or unpaid, is to try before you buy. And that's kind of a neat, more powerful perspective than what is usually given to us of why you should do an internship of like, well, everybody starts at the bottom. You've got to climb the ladder, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I like putting it in your hands of being like, maybe you don't know if you want to work for these people. It's basically an alternative deal. But then they went on to say, if it's not giving you experience that you want and helping you meet people that inspire you, then it's time to leave. And I'm like, heck yeah. If you're going to do it, you are in the position of power there. I think something that's really important here as well, because I had several internships. I remember one of them was at a social media agency. Another one was at an ad agency and the other one was at MoMA. um, And it wasn't even a design internship. It was helping with their direct-to-consumer marketing. Hmm. which actually taught me about Google Analytics and used my other side of the brain. And I, I knew I didn't want to do marketing outside of college, but I think working in that industry was something I wanted to experience in, what it was like to work um, for a nonprofit. And I was really excited to gain that um, experience from it. And so you should look at the value propositions of the internship. And for sure, you should be making sure that you're getting what you want out of it. I think the most important thing they say in here is saying it's important to make sure you have a list of exactly what you want to experience as an intern because they just might not know and they might give you the busy work. But I think if you're proactive about, hey, I want to get better animation skills and you go to your manager every week and say that, they're going to make sure there's an opportunity for you to do that at the company. Mm -hmm. Um, But I totally agree. If you're not getting anything out of it, there's no need for you to like waste your time if you don't feel like you're being valued there as well. Like even though you are an intern, it is your life and your career path and you should feel like you have control of that. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that for me, was the thing that made me say, oh, this is actually a really deep article. I want to read this. Yeah. It's really meaty. So even if there's only a few points in there that you really cling to, I think everyone's going to find something. And if not, I think we all know someone that might be looking for a job right now. And mm. this stuff is really relevant. So excited to share that one. Cool. Next on our list, it's from AIGA's I Am Design blog, Design Studio Epfel which actually stands for a practice for everyday life, is launching its own type boundary. So Apple is, or Apple, because they're British, they're a design studio, and they do a lot of typographic work. It looks like they do a lot of print work as well, getting into the nitty gritty of typography in their work. They have launched a type boundary, which I've seen some design studios do. I know Mooka Design here in New York, I think did that a few years ago, which is quite interesting because if you do end up making a lot of custom typefaces for your clients as a design studio, which is becoming more and more common these days, you know, might as well be offering 
those to the public if you'd like to do that. So talks about their typeface remnants, which is a very, very condensed serif and high contrast typeface. It's pretty unusual looking, but it's definitely interesting to look at. Be great for display sizes, really, really large titles, display titles. And it's a great sample of their work and they have a variety of work in their foundries, but this one's certainly fun to look at. Yeah. It's interesting to me that it's announced as, oh, we're launching a type foundry as opposed to just like, hey, we're selling fonts. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm yeah, not really sure. Different. I think that's sort of just like a luxury definition. That yeah. sounds really nice. That's mm-hmm. how we're going to describe it. Uh, I actually I really like, love this font though. I thought yeah. it was pretty interesting. They said it was based off of an old Serbian book cover. Mm. And this Latin character set that we see here actually is meant to capture the sense of beauty in a Cyrillic alphabet. Cyrillic is what's used in Eastern Europe and has some different structures to their letter forms. It's hard to just like look at that objectively with Latin forms, but it's interesting to see this Latin form come from actually something that wasn't a Latin alphabet at all. What do you like about it though, Micah? (laughs) It's kind of more personal preference than a design critique. I've always been a fan of things that feel antique, and this Mm -hmm. certainly feels antique. They even said it in the beige background i think to make it feel yeah. more antique did you see that number four that yeah. four is funky so <laughs> the crossbar of the four at the end on the right side actually goes up there's like a vertical little serif to it which i've never seen before i have to say too the t threw me off because there's serifs on it and they're mm. like hairline serifs so it's just this tiny thin line at the top of the capital i for example and then you get to the t and it's this line that's 10 times thicker. Yeah, you're and right. And that's not normal, but it looks kind of cool. It makes your eye dance a little bit when you're looking yes. at the top of those letters, you know, kind of go yeah. up and down a little bit when you get to letters that are like that. And it's unusual. And Absolutely. at first I didn't like it. And then I'm like, you know, in the context of a, of a whole typeset word, it looks neat. Yeah, like they somehow have managed to make the color fairly even it maybe it's because the words we're seeing now make it look pretty even but um, mm, that's a good opportunity that- for a glossary term typographic color Ooh, yes me and micah are working on lots of micro education content so which if you haven't checked out our instagram we just posted one yesterday that olivia did an amazing job on well thanks it was all about tuscan type style which is one of the more obscure ones but Still one of my favorites. But typographic color being the uniformity of the space in between the letters as you look at a typeset word, right? It's definitely something that I got better at identifying the longer I looked at typography. I remember the first time someone taught me the concept, it was tough. But I think that's a great definition just for an introduction. It's the kind of thing where you kind of squint your eyes and you're not really reading what the word is. You're just looking at the shapes and... Mm -hmm. If the whole thing feels like a block that's sitting real square on the ground, like you wouldn't be able to move it unless you really wanted to, then that's a classification of of a good, consistent color, Mm -hmm. quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And then if when you're doing that, it looks like, oh, there's a gap there and this part feels a lot heavier than the other part. That usually means as a type designer, it's time to do a little bit of nudging. Yeah, definitely. That's definitely a good introduction. Fun little mini education. I love that. Another type nerd article is our next one by It's Nice That. And 
forgive me if I do not pronounce this name correctly, but this designer is from France. So I'm going to try a French pronunciation. Mm. Her name is Marie Mamse Bellier, I believe. And she has a pretty unique approach to graphic design and type design, which is steeped in history. So it's nice that kind of tells the story of her practice and she uses typography as a tool to revive stories through old shapes, which I thought was a pretty interesting take on what typography is. She really focused on storytelling with letter forms. Some references are wide ranging from the 19th century to the 70s. I love looking at the 70s for type reference too. And then she goes across the spectrum from American type to Japanese type, medieval and Gothic layout design, um, inspired by fantasy in the fields of gaming and fashion. I love how much she pulls from these really obscure places that I would not think of. I think there's some interesting examples of her type on the It's Nice That article, but I really got pulled into her stuff when I looked at her personal portfolio website, which is mariemamsebellier.fr. And it's crazy. She like creates these wonderful textures with typography and these really unusual letter forms that are really jarring to look at, but I can tell have lots of thought and references in them because just the letter forms are so rich and there's so much to look at. You know, I have to say, you can always tell when it's an artist's portfolio as opposed to a designer's portfolio when the type is set at like eight pixels or something. Oh my gosh, yes. I like the see smaller that. the type, the more artistic it is. Are you talking about the navigation for her website? Yeah, yeah, and even the description underneath the about section and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Which I mean, I think it's true, but I'm still teasing of just this this is more in the category of design as art, which okay. I think is more your wheelhouse than mine. It's a little bit more my wheelhouse, I'll admit. I do think it's exciting to see experimentation and breaking some rules. So definitely excited to share that. I think it's important to see stuff that's less corporate and commercial to kind of get the wide range of what's happening in the design news. You see the King Arthur flower that's going to be in everyone's supermarket. And then you see this, which is not at all going to be in anyone's supermarket or like (laughs) general visual landscape. So super excited to share that. Our next article came from you, Micah, and I'm ready for you to geek out about it. (laughs) It took me a minute to figure out what this was. But how about you start and explain it? Well, so the context here is that there's a company that released this artificial intelligence model, this API, this system that you could interact with, where you send it plain English language and it learns from what you send it and can basically generate I want to say anything because that's the whole point is it can generate anything, but designers have been using it to generate whole design systems and screens and apps in the context of like you say, hey, I want an app that has a nav bar and a camera icon and the photos title and a messages icon. You literally just write that text and their system processes it and comes back with basically code that you can render and it actually draws those things out. And so this guy built a system in Figma, which a very modern new take on something like Photoshop that lives in a browser where you can code plugins for it. So he coded a plugin where you literally do that. You just type in the idea of what you want the thing to draw and it draws screens of apps and websites and stuff for you. 
And the example that you gave, which it was an app that has a nav bar with a camera's icon, a photo's title, and then it later says a feed of photos um, with each photo having a user icon. I mean, if you think about what verbally that means, they show an example of you entering that into the designer field, pressing the call to action, which just says design, and kind of a discount Instagram shows up. And, <laughs> discount Instagram, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not exactly, but it, I mean, if, if like something that think, looks like the interface of Instagram, kind of. Yeah, because if you think about breaking down the interface of Instagram, it's incredibly simple, um, still like a powerful app that millions of people use. But that, I mean, that's interesting. And it's interesting seeing the responses people got to seeing this generative AI come up with this app design. People said, we're going to get automated. It's just a matter of time. You know, other people said graphic designers are probably still significantly safer than UX designer. And then there was someone else that said, if all you're able to create through this is an app that looks like a knockoff of Instagram, we have nothing to freak out about. <laughs> so I think like I mean, the reactions to this is definitely catalyzed this article about, you know, what does this mean and where is our future going and talks about how generative AI has been around for a little bit. It hasn't totally changed the job landscape, but you know. True. I mean, I remember a startup coming out where they used AI in a similar sense to design your website for you. And it would basically Mm. like analyze the content that you put in and say, here's five designs that we think would look good for this. Which one of these do you like? And you click a few buttons and it and it learns from what you say you like and then keeps generating designs until it, it lands on one that's like, hey, we think you would like this one. Mm-hmm. And that's the core of why this is interesting. This plugin is an experiment in, hey, this tool exists now, what can we do with it? But in order for this tool to exist, they needed to train it on design. So like machine learning works by you feed it similar information mm-hmm. and then you ask it a question and it analyzes what it's seen before and gives you something vaguely similar back. Mm -hmm. And so this plugin that is basically a test to see what it can do exists because of all the designs that have been made before it. Yeah. Yep. That's kind of what I got from the article and that's a good breakdown. And I, I honestly get nervous when I see an article that says, let's talk about that GPT three AI tweet that shook (laughs) designers to the core. I'm like, Oh God, what does this mean? This is too technology based for me to understand it. But I think you did a good job of kind of summing that up. And I think they have a really great visual to help you understand what they're talking about. And it's not just techie speak. It's a much more larger philosophical question about the design industry as well. Yeah. So it was kind of just neat and fun. Yeah. I think this is a good chunk to thank all the League members who are supporting us. If you don't know, we give extra content in the weekly newsletter every week for people who are paying members supporting us this week. That included what? Several jobs and several font finds that we got for you. And the job descriptions were UX designer, graphic designer, print designer, we have some cool fonts that are handwriting, script, sans serif. Yeah, so a lot and that about. helps keep us going and you get exclusive content for being a member. So if you're tuning into the podcast and love it and you love the links that we share every week, come join us as a member. It's an affordable $5 a month at the moment. That really goes a long way for us as well. Yeah. All right. Cool. So okay. 
The next article talks about the rebranding of the Royal Academy of Music. <laughs> you really London. do try to do an accent in every week. I just realized I this. do. It's fun. I can really only do a British accent, though, and I can't do that well. And I'm sorry, Hugo. <laughs> but there's been a rebranding of the Royal Academy of Music. It's now this beautiful, sleek, sans serif, bring it into the new century. I do love this little kind of, I guess, underneath the word mark is a symbol, and it's the crescendo symbol which mm. looks quite abstract in context but i saw that i was like hey i know that and that's cute and fun and not immediate but i do kind of like what it brings to the logo and the word mark they have a new photography style which i think is also quite interesting that goes alongside the type you know really thin sans typography and it's more candid photos and i think it really captures this fly on the wall style that makes the images less perfect but feel more real and i think that's an interesting move for an education program i guess it's nice to see that as designers the context that we work in matters a lot i don't think this would be as good a rebrand if it weren't for that photography i agree i agree i think it does a really good mixing of that type and photo style and overall great to look at I actually first looked at this and I was like, oh, it's like Adele's album, which coincidentally (laughs) set in Railway. Eh? This is not Railway and it looks different than Adele's album. A little bit different, but you know, both came from England. So gotta (laughs) love it. Right. Right. (laughs) All right. So our last article, I'm super excited to share. This tip came in from my friend Nassim Labichi. Lovely friend who is a recent FIT grad, does some really beautiful photo styling. We've connected on a creative level most recently in the past few months, and I know he's a follower of the podcast and newsletter. So thanks, Nassim. This is super helpful. It is a website called unblast.com, and on it are links to a bunch of free mock-ups for all sorts of things. So there's free mock-ups for business cards or free mock-ups for billboards or free mock-ups to, for app designs. It really goes a spectrum. There's also some free illustrations, some free websites. I've been starting to see websites like this come across more and more where it's kind of a bank of resources for mock-ups or any sort of templates that, you know, you don't have to search Google like intricately now that I used to do in college, I remember, just to make mm-hmm. something have that professional edge. And, you know, I think while in the professional world, you don't necessarily use these mock-ups or templates as often for students or for anyone that's trying to maybe create a portfolio project that looks like it was actually done, even if you're doing it just for your portfolio. Like this stuff is really great resources and tools to get you started. And just like great examples of, you know, what professional grade work looks like and can help you elevate um, your work to that level it needs to be. Yeah. And I was excited too to see the we're hiring section up at the top saying, if you're a designer who can create resources similar to these, they seem to be looking for people to make that kind of stuff. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. So just like a great resource. And I know I bookmark these type of like template banks or, you know, free resource banks for when I need to pull from it for a pitch presentation or something like that, where I need to kind of whip something that looks professional together pretty quickly. This stuff is just a good resource. Super tactical. Yeah. Olivia. I think it's time. (laughs) Boom, 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 boom. It's nerd alert. It changes every week. Yeah. What are we talking about this week? It's something that I've actually been thinking about for a couple weeks and has kindly come to fruition. And that is this idea of 
our current numeral system, you know, having 10 digits, having a base 10 and having decimal points, not a European system. It traveled across many countries and across many centuries. And it's actually called an Arabic numeral or Hindu Arabic numeral system. If you want something to compare it with, think about Roman numerals. That's another numeral mm. system that has now become mostly outdated, but we're going to talk about like how that has kind of survived. And you know, numbers and our math system are all things we take for granted. So I wanted to see how do we get to where we are? What was that journey like? And things super interesting before we get into the history, there was a survey recently in the U.S., they surveyed parents if they would be okay if their children learned about Arabic numerals in elementary school. And, and there was an unfortunately large amount that said, I would prefer not for my children to learn what Arabic numerals were. Most parents didn't actually know that Arabic numerals was our contemporary numeral system. And it's showing still there's discrimination and Islamophobia in our country. And This was in America. And this is in America. We have all the the problems right now. But, you know, I do think it's important that we shine a light on this history. We are a global village and this thing that we have taken for granted did not even come from a Western culture or European culture. And I I really want to examine that today. So we we are going to do that. I kind of gave you some background. Arabic or Hindu Arabic numerals is the common numeral system we use. Let me tell you why I keep on calling it Hindu Arabic. This numeral system was invented between the first and fourth centuries by Indian mathematicians. It was not developed by Arabic mathematicians. So at the beginning of the world, first and fourth century, every culture actually had different numeral system and they actually had different bases. So in Indian mathematics, there was base 10. A reason why we think there was base 10 is because we have 10 fingers and they would count with 10 fingers and then restart every mm, time. So our clocks are actually, yeah, and our clocks are base 12, which is an easily divisible number. But apparently the Aztecs actually had base 20 because of their 10 fingers and 10 toes. Oh, that's neat. Interesting, right? So this was developed between the first and fourth century, but it was adopted by Arabic mathematics in the ninth century. And so we're still in far, far away times. But it was popularized by a man named Al Khwarizmi, whose Latin nickname was Algorithmi, which is the (laughs) form of algorithm. And what did he do? He pioneered a way to solve problems called Al-Jabar, which translates then to algebra. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. I had yeah. no idea. Right, and so like all these terms we take for granted are not at all Western terms. They come from Arabic. And so al Khwarizmi was not Arabic. He was actually Persian. So it's crazy that we call it Arabic numerals. And I think it's because of the dilution through history and the retelling of it that it's been lump summed into Arabic. But truly, it's this mixture of a lot of cultures that made this popular. So he was Persian. He wrote the first well-circulated literature about Arabic numerals while he was in Baghdad at the House of Wisdom, um, which was a great meeting place for scholars. What a good name. Right? House of Wisdom. His work was written in Arabic, but it wasn't until 300 years later that things started blowing up a little bit more when his Arabic writing was translated to Latin. And so 300 years later, we're around the year 1200, and our friend Fibonacci shows up. I think we all kind of are familiar. He discovered this writing and then said, hey, this system with 10 digits and the concept of zero, which wasn't even a concept for a lot of Europeans, is a more intuitive system and we should get this popularized and we should get rid of Roman numerals, which is hard to do math. Like imagine multiplying with Roman numerals. That is not easy. Mm. So 
he was trying to popularize it. And so he began this campaign with other men of science because it was likely men, to be honest, and they were advocating for it instead of using Roman numerals. Roman numerals had been around for thousands of years at this point. They were popularized with the Roman Empire. All of Europe was like, we're using Roman numerals. This is what we've done for so long. This is how we're going to do it. And so there was a lot of resistance. So there was the resistance that Roman numerals were status quo. Some Europeans claimed it was unchristian and were against promoting trade with the Islamic world. And so that was a barrier for our common numeral system right now. Italians were really worried it would be too easy to change accounting records. They said, oh, with, with Arabic numerals, you just add zeros to the end of your number. And it, you, it's a totally different accounting number because Romans actually used a flick on top of the last number in a set of numbers to indicate you cannot just go ahead and add some numerals to the end of it. So that was wow. like a legitimate concern. And so I think that's where we get, you know, when we write a check, we write the numbers on the check and we do a line afterwards so no one can modify the, the dollar amount. So I think that's kind of where that comes from. I mean, to be fair, I don't think I've written a check in like 10 years. Okay. Well, <laughs> to our check writing friends. And so there was like a lot of resistance to this. Slowly, by 1500, people started adopting it. It was more commonplace. The Medicis, the famous Italian family that ruled all of Italy for a period to try to help propel the use. Up until the 18th century, there was still kind of a battle. And finally, from the 18th century on, Arabic numerals became commonplace. Very exciting. Much better for accounting purposes. You know, much better for multiplying. Much easier to do math. And that's I mean, like, just, the- That's just a wild history. You kind of just covered thousands of years. And it's hard to think of a significant enough equivalent in modern day. I'm sure there are things, right? Like maybe the the growth of the English language as a language that more and more countries around the world are mm-hmm. adding on top of their languages. Mm-hmm. But what a slow process. Right? Despite, despite the speed that you had to go through that. Like what a slow process. How much more intuitive it seems to use like Arabic numbers rather than Roman numerals. I mean, well, if you were raised on Roman numerals, you would probably think the Roman numerals were more intuitive. I I guess so. There are certain easy ways to add and subtract. I think um, for anyone in accounting, though, you can't match up columns very well. Like with with Arabic numbers, you can column it up. Things will line up into a column. With Roman numerals, I mean, you put the I in front of the V. It's like a lower number, but more characters than, you know, just a V. That's a great point. I wanted to connect this to, you know, where we see Roman numerals now and how we can bring this history into our modern day. And so I did some research as to Roman numerals appearing in graphic design, appearing in our everyday objects and why that's a thing. So some objects where we still see Roman numerals are chapter numbers for books, page indexes or appendices for textbooks. You know, before the actual page numbers begin, you can reference an introduction and they usually have lowercase roman numerals before the official book book begins the meat of the book and those lowercase roman numerals are called romanets that was my (laughs) really that was one of my favorite things i've learned this week so cute and so they're also commonly used for watches and clocks and they're used for names and families you know like king james ii but even if you think of king louis the 14th who's a major person in history, as horrible as he was, you would never think about writing Louis XIV out. You'd always write about Louis X. I. That's a great point. Yeah. So 
that's interesting. So I was thinking about in what case would you use Roman numerals instead of numbers? And, you know, I found some people talking about a case for using Roman number Roman numerals in movie titles for melodrama. So if you think mm-hmm. about Rocky Four, it was Rocky IV instead of Rocky numeral four and rocky iv kind of like has this regal more like classic sensibility to it and does kind of add a a melodramatic effect to you know the look of the word it's also used by luxury brands i found this really interesting article by the new york times about how watch brands decide what numerals they're going to put on their faces so Mm. in 2010 luxury watch brand piaget replaced Arabic numerals with Roman numerals and noticed an increase in sales. And that's so fascinating. And then they segmented it out into their different markets and said that Asian markets prefer the classical look of Roman numerals, while the European market is receptive to both Roman numerals and baton indicators. Um, But Arabic numbers in general are seen globally as a more contemporary option that gives a sporty look to a watch. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. My last tidbit of pop culture, I actually found so many articles about the Super Bowl and Roman numerals, which can even appeal to like a broader American audience. Mm. So many sports blogs are talking about Roman numerals and typography. I was like, I was having a wonderful time. (laughs) Um, So, you know, a lot of people are asking, why is the Super Bowl still using Roman numerals? Like, it's hard to decode those Roman numerals after the Super Bowl name, but it's been in almost every logo since the Super Bowl started. Mm. And so Roman numerals were adopted to clarify any confusion that may occur during the year the Super Bowl was and then the number the Super Bowl was. So Super Bowl 18 was not in 2018. Super Bowl 46 was not in 1946. And so by doing the Roman numerals after the name Super Bowl, they think it's more clarifying as to what number Super Bowl it was rather than the year the Super Bowl was. That That's an interesting tidbit. It does make sense. And kind of just makes me wonder if they've ever considered resetting it. They did. Oh. One time, actually in recent history, I don't remember this, probably because I don't have a crazy amount of interest in the Super Bowl, but advertisers changed the name Super Bowl 50, which was Super Bowl L in Roman numerals, to the Arabic numerals Super Bowl 50 because Super Bowl L didn't have as much gravitas. L could be mistaken for lose. And it just like wasn't catchy enough. It didn't like sparkle enough. And they thought 50 was actually a time to use that. So the question is, in 2066, will we be saying Super Bowl C? Because <laughs> that is Super Bowl 100. I'm not sure we're going to last that long. We should both be alive, Micah. <laughs> <laughs> So that's so fascinating to see how Roman numerals are still being used when people decide to use Roman over Arabic. And, you know, the overall history about Arabic numerals that people have taken for granted and has more or less become erased and also generalized. And I think it's important to look at how we got to where we are so we don't take anything for granted and, you know, kind of make us a more knowledgeable society. On top of the handful of interesting examples could give some inspiration for if you're making something. That was very neat. Thanks. I was very excited about this week. I came in <laughs> jazzed this morning. You're so awesome, Olivia. I love you. Oh, love you too, Micah. It's been a good one. All right. So I guess I guess that's all the great stuff we have for this week. That was fun. That was a lot of cool stuff. Lots to share. Lots of knowledge to pass around as well. You can tell everyone about Romanettes. 
they didn't know what that was. That'll be great. That'll be great. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in, everybody. We love you too. And we will see you next week with even more awesome links. Yay!